I'd like to have you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 this morning as we finish our study in the book of Philippians. We'll begin in verse 10. I think all of us probably at some times have felt the tension between two truths that we are taught in the Scriptures. One is that we are to be entirely and totally and wholly dependent upon the Lord and find Him to be totally sufficient for our needs. And on the other hand, we're also taught that we are members of a body and that we need each other, that we need the ministry of other believers in the body of Christ. Well, how do these two concepts, which appear to be at first inconsistent, how are they to be reconciled? Well, I think as we look at Paul's example in the end of Philippians 4, we'll see how these two truths, the total sufficiency of Christ and yet our dependence upon other believers to meet our needs, how these two work hand in hand and hand in glove. You've probably heard a story that illustrates this uh, uh, tension. It's a story about a... um, man whose house was overwhelmed by a flood and it occupied the first uh, story and then the floodwaters occupied the second story and drove him onto the roof of his house along with every other house in the town. And as he perched on the roof of his house praying for God to uh, rescue him, a neighbor drove up on a motorboat and asked him if he wanted a lift. And he said, no, thank you, I'm counting upon God to rescue me. Thanks just the same. And then not long after that, a law enforcement official came by in a motorboat and asked him again if he would like a lift to safety. And he said, no, uh, thank you, I'm depending upon God to rescue me. And not long after that, a helicopter comes down and the helicopter pilot uses the intercom and asks him if he would like a lift to safety. And he says, no, thank you, I'm counting upon God to rescue me. Shortly after that, the floodwaters rose another five feet and killed him. So he stands before the Lord, his next uh, contact, and uh, he complains to the Lord. He says, Lord, I prayed that you would rescue me from the floodwaters, and uh, you didn't. And the Lord said to him, well, I'm not sure what more I could have done for you. I sent you two boats and a helicopter. But that illustrates the tension between between finding God to be the one who wholly satisfies our need and yet depending upon those around us to satisfy those same needs. I think we'll get an answer to that dilemma in this uh, paragraph. Now, in verses 10 through 13, Paul advances the first truth of the two great truths he wants to communicate to us. And the first great truth that Paul wants us to understand in verses 10 through 13 is that we are, in fact, self-sufficient in Jesus Christ. If we have Jesus Christ, we need nothing else in life. We have a basis of security and contentment which is utterly independent of our external circumstances. And then in verses 14 through 20, Paul goes on to explain that at the very same time, he was dependent upon the ministry of other believers to him and willing and ready to accept ministry from them to him to minister to his basic needs. Now, we'll see as we trace through Paul's argument here that even he was caught between the two poles of these truths and will swing first to one truth then feels the tension from the way he states his allegiance to that truth and then will swing back to the other pole that we are, in fact, dependent upon each other. And at last, the pendulum comes to rest right where it belongs in the center. Now, Paul's circumstances at this time, as you are aware, is that he was in prison in Rome, awaiting trial before Nero. He was under house arrest in his own private 
rented quarters, but manacled to a Roman guard, a member of the Praetorian Guard, uh, 24 hours a day. Now, while he'd been in prison at Rome, the Philippian church had taken up a collection for him and sent it to him by means of Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, not long before this letter was written, had delivered this gift from the Philippians. And the letter to the Philippians is essentially a thank you letter from Paul to the Philippian church, an expression of his gratitude for their concern for him. It's essentially a thank you letter from a missionary on the field to the supporting church back home. And in the process of talking to Epaphroditus about the condition and health of the Philippian church, he became aware of this rift between these two gifted uh, women leaders in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, that was threatening the harmony of the church. And so a good percentage of the letter to the Philippians uh, contains Paul's counsel to the church on how to deal with this potential rift, this threat to the unity of the fellowship. And that, excuse me, and now he concludes with his word of thanksgiving to them for their generosity. Let's begin in verse 10. <clears throat> Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last, or now at length, really, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. The word for revived here literally means to blossom or to flower again. So Paul expresses his joy and gratitude to the Philippians that their concern for him, their thoughtfulness for him, had once again blossomed, had flowered into full bloom. It evidently had remained dormant for a period of time, but now had blossomed back to life, and for that Paul was grateful. We have rose bushes in our yard, some in the back and some along the fence in the front, and it's a delight in the spring and summer to watch these rose bushes come back to life. They lay dormant and lifeless during the winter and early spring, and yet in late spring and early summer, they blossom once again. It's a delight to see. And that's the metaphor that Paul uses to describe the renewal of their concern. Now, Paul immediately wants to correct a possible misunderstanding. You normally have to revive uh, someone who is uh, comatose or unconscious, and he doesn't want the Philippians to think that, they have, uh, that he has been absent from their thoughts. So immediately, he says in verse 10, you were, indeed you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. The verb tense he uses for you were concerned is the verb tense which implies that their concern, their thoughtfulness for Paul, had been a consistent fact in their prior experience. And Paul explains, it's not that you weren't thinking of me. It's not that you weren't concerned for me or didn't care for me. It's simply that you lack the opportunity to express that concern. Now, we don't know why. We know that the Philippian church itself was a poor church. Perhaps they simply didn't have the financial resources to make a gift to Paul, even though they wanted to. Perhaps they didn't even know where Paul was, communication at that time being what it was. Perhaps they had no courier who could carry the gift to Paul in Rome until Epaphroditus' schedule freed him up to render that service. But at any rate, the opportunity finally presented itself and their concern, their steady, ongoing thoughtfulness for Paul blossomed once again into life. The verb that's translated, you lacked opportunity, there in the end of verse 10, literally means to have no time. Now, probably all of us have felt that dynamic at work in our lives at one point or another. Someone around us about whom we are concerned, our heart goes out to them, our thoughts are with them. We desire to reach out in some way to minister to them, but we simply do not have the time. 
Due to the press of work and family and other ministry commitments, we simply do not have the time. Or perhaps we see someone around us with a financial need and we long to do something to relieve that we're concerned for them, but we simply do not have the resources on hand to do so. Well, the word of encouragement here is that eventually God, as he did with the Philippians, will provide the opportunity, the resources, or the time for your concern for those people to blossom into life. So be patient until he does. Now in verses 11 through 13, Paul wants to make it clear that although he is grateful to the Philippians, he rejoices, in fact, that their concern for him has been revived. In verses 11 to 13, Paul wants to make it clear to the Philippians that he is not dependent upon their concern. He's not counting upon their concern. He wants to make sure that they do not feel under any pressure to respond to his need or feel obligated in some way to to minister to him because, as Paul will point out, his dependence is solely upon the Lord. And his conviction is that although the Philippians were used by God to meet this need in his life, prisoners, after all, do not live in a penthouse, he had a serious financial need at this time, and although God had used the Philippians to meet that need, Paul wants to make it clear to them that his dependence is not upon the Philippians, but it's wholly upon God. And if the Philippians, for some reason, were unable to come to his aid, God would find some other way to minister to him and to reach out to him. So he wants to make it very clear that he's grateful for their gift, but his dependence is not upon them, but wholly upon God. And see how that takes the pressure off of the Philippians. They can do so out of the delight, not out of a sense of pressure, not out of a sense of obligation, not out of a sense of, if I can't, nobody will. Because Paul's confidence is that God would find a way to minister to him and meet his needs. Let's read verses 11 to 13. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says in verse 11 that I have learned to be content. The word content is an interesting one at this time because it was a word that the Stoic philosophers used to describe a self-sufficiency, a self-sufficiency which made a man independent of his external circumstances, which gave him a basis of security, a basis of tranquility, a basis of satisfaction, which was utterly independent of what was going on around him. And Paul uses this philosophic term to describe what he had found in Christ, a self-sufficiency independent of people or external circumstances. You get a kick out of the way the uh, Stoics encouraged you to go about developing this self-sufficiency, and you'll see immediately why Paul's approach is uh, vastly superior. Their approach was to get you to purge yourself of, of care or of concern so that no matter what happened to you, you could simply say, I don't care. I'm utterly indifferent to what happens to me, to sort of purge yourself of any kind of emotional response to things. They suggest that you kind of start small. You know, break a fork or a cup or something, and then say to yourself, I don't care. And after you learn to do that, then you take a household pet, take your cat, throw it in front of a car, say, I don't care. 
And then once you've been able to do that, then they encourage you to begin inflicting pain on yourself and say, I don't care. Now, if you try that, not only would you be in need of serious psychiatric help eventually, but you would find it simply would not work. Paul has a much better response and solution for us here. He found a basis on which he could be self-sufficient, that is, the basis of contentment and tranquility that was utterly independent of his financial or material circumstances. Now, you notice immediately in verse 12 the series of contrasts that Paul draws. There were times, he says, when I had to get along with humble means. Other times I lived in prosperity. I was filled at some times and went hungry at others. I had abundance at one time and suffered need at others. Now, many of you who are self-employed in this room know immediately what Paul is talking about. Life for him was a series of cycles in which it was feast or famine. There were periods in Paul's life where financially he had more than he needed, more than he knew what to do with, had extra, had an abundance, was in prosperity, was filled, had uh, material things left over. And there are other times in Paul's life where he lived on the thin edge of bankruptcy and poverty, where he went hungry and suffered serious need. So all of us, no matter what our condition is this morning, can identify with Paul. Some of us, I suspect, are living in times of prosperity. Every need you have is abundantly satisfied, and you have money left over. You have more than you need. Others of us in this room, I am willing to bet, are living this morning right on the thin edge of going under. Perhaps you've even gone under uh, recently. man talked to me between services this morning and just in this last week lost his house. They've lost everything that they own. So I'm sure that uh, every circumstance in Paul's life that he had gone through is represented by people in this room. And he has a word for us regardless of the financial circumstances, whether we're plush, whether we're flush, or whether we're right on the thin edge of poverty, Paul has a word for us. Now, the striking thing to me in verse 12 is that Paul tells us that he had to learn to be content in prosperity. He had to learn to be content when he was filled. He had to learn to be content when he had an abundance. And I think all of us automatically think that an increase in material goods confers an increase in contentment or satisfaction. But it simply is not true. That even if you are living in prosperity this morning, if you are to be content, tranquil, satisfied, happy in life, you must find some basis other than your material prosperity for that. If you don't find it independent of your wealth, you will never find it. David and I just last weekend uh, spent the weekend in Sun Valley, and both of us were just impressed with how uh, unhappy many of the people we saw. You could see it etched on their faces, how unfulfilled and how restless and empty they were. People who had it all, and yet there was a hollowness and a void inside. They were, they were not happy people. So we stood in line waiting for the uh, buffet on uh, Saturday night before the ice show. We overheard conversations, and we're both impressed with just how empty these conversations were and how they represented a restless search for some kind of new experience or new far-off resort that would provide the thrill that they were looking for. Obviously unhappy people, people who suffered from what Ray Steadman calls destination sickness, having everything you want and wanting nothing you have. 
So even those that are prosperous must find a basis for contentment which is utterly independent of their wealth. And Paul says he'd learned that. He'd learned to be content not only when he was prosperous, but also when he had to get along with humble means. The word that is translated get along with humble means in verse 12 is a word that was used to describe a river that was running at low levels. This is the rivers in our mountains are this summer. How to get along, how to be content when the cupboard was next to bear. Now you will also observe that Paul says this was something that he learned. I have learned to be content. So this is not something that comes automatically to us, nor did it come automatically to the apostle. And it's not, by the way, the kind of learning that you can do from a textbook or the kind of learning that you can do from the scriptures, the kind of learning that you can do on Sunday morning. All we can do when we look at Philippians 4 is to discover that this is possible. But to actually appropriate this truth to ourselves means we must learn this in the crucible of experience must learn this in day-to-day life, that our basis of contentment has nothing to do with our material health. Now this, I believe, is why God had taken Paul through so many different financial circumstances, why he went through ups and downs, peaks and valleys, why there were vacillations and fluctuations in his material condition, so that he would learn when he was prosperous that the secret to contentment was found in Jesus and not in what he had, that those things did not confer contentment, and also to learn in the crucible of experience that even when he had nothing in the cupboard, he still could be content and happy and tranquil because of the presence of Jesus Christ in his life. And this implies, by the way, which I think can be a great encouragement to us, that this is a process that Paul learned this through the various episodes in life through which God took him. So if you're not there yet, if you haven't arrived at contentment, regardless of your financial condition, take heart. It took Paul time to learn this, and if it took time for him to learn it, we certainly can be patient with ourselves and with God while he teaches us the same truth. Now Paul says in verse 12 that there is a secret that you must learn. He uses a different verb in verse 12, I have learned the secret. And this verb, likewise, is a rich verb in terms of cultural associations. There were a number of religions competing with Christianity at this time in the Roman Empire, which were called mystery religions. The word mystery uh, in the Greek language refers to something which is a secret, a truth or a set of truths which are not revealed to the uninitiated. Now, these mystery religions all consisted of a certain series of secret rituals or truths, and those on the outside were not made privy to these truths. You had to become initiated into one of these mystery religions to be taught these deep truths that contained the secrets to life. Now, that's the verb that Paul uses in verse 12, I have learned the secret. In other words, Paul uses this term and says, I have been initiated into the truth that will enable you to be self-sufficient and content regardless of your circumstances. This is a truth that's not available to anyone who does not know Jesus Christ. It's not available anywhere else. It's a secret that's revealed to us only on the pages of Scriptures and can only be appropriated by those who are in a living union with Jesus Christ. Now, the secret, I think, Paul describes is in verse 13. This is the secret that he learned. I can do all things through him or in him who strengthens me. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, Paul primarily is talking about being content regardless of your financial circumstances. Paul says, that I can do. I can be satisfied. I can be tranquil. I can be at rest. I can be at ease. I can be satisfied regardless of my financial circumstances. In him, in connection with the one who strengthens me, who infuses his strength and his life and his power to me, the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ to impart to us his daily supply of encouragement and strength and power and tranquility. That, Paul says, is the secret that will set you free from bondage to your financial circumstances. I can do all things, be content regardless of my circumstances, in the one who strengthens me. Now, I think that is a tremendous word of encouragement to us today. doesn't matter how large your home is or how large your family is or whether your washing machine is working or your car is running. There is a basis, Paul says, on which you can be content. You can be happy. You can be settled in your heart and at peace and truly satisfied. Because it's found in a living relationship with an indwelling Christ and has nothing to do with our external circumstances. And this is a tremendous route to freedom. G.K. Chesterton is the one who said that there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. A number of working mothers in our fellowship in the recent past have, uh, who have been working outside the home have quit their jobs in order to devote themselves wholly to their families. Now, if you've ever been in that situation, you know that to give up one income means to settle for a sharp reduction in lifestyle. And yet these women and these families have been able to do so because they found a basis of contentment and satisfaction that has nothing to do with whether they have two incomes or one on which to live probably heard the story about the three children who were given as a prize the opportunity to go on a shopping spree in a toy factory. And they were given ten minutes to collect as many toys as they could possibly collect. And so the doors were opened and the first two boys raced into the toy factory up and down the aisles, grabbing G.I. Joes and He-Man, Masters of the Universe, off the shelves, piling their arms full, toys spilling off to one side and the other. But the third child, a girl, as soon as the doors were opened, went straight to the toy maker, wrapped her arms around him and said, I'm taking you home. <laughs> and uh, That captures what Paul is describing for us here, that the secret to contentment is life is not the toys, but the toy maker. And this answers the question, by the way, how much is enough? How much is enough to be content? Well, the answer is whatever you have. Whatever you have this morning on August 9th, 1987, whatever you have in the garage, whatever you have in the bank, that is enough. Whatever you have in your wallet, that is enough to be content because you know the toy maker. Now, Paul goes on in verses 14 to 20 to explain to the Philippians that although his source of sufficiency is found wholly in Christ, he is nevertheless extremely grateful to them for their ministry to him and that he is, in fact, willing to be dependent upon others. 
Nevertheless, verse 14, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You've done well to be partners with me in my time of pressure. And you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, all of us have met people who are trying to be unbiblically self-sufficient, who argue that because Jesus is all they need, they are going to try to get along without depending or needing other people. And Paul was mature enough not to make that mistake. Also, you probably had the experience at some point of trying to reach out to someone who you knew was suffering great need and yet found them to be closed to your help or reluctant to accept it. Well, it's a mark of maturity that we see demonstrated in Paul is that he was willing to receive help from other believers, even though he was a mighty apostle. This is one of the most difficult things for people who are in the healing professions, for doctors, for psychologists, for counselors, for psychiatrists, for pastors. This is one of the most difficult things for them to learn is to receive ministry from other people and to receive that as a ministry of God through people to them to minister to their basic needs. There's an almost irresistible temptation when you are the one that people look to to have the answers and people are consistently depending upon you. It's tempting to try to live life without needing or depending or receiving that kind of help. And it's a great mistake, a mistake that Paul did not make. There is a uh, famous biblical scholar of the 19th century, J.B. Lightfoot was his name, a man whose works I found greatly helpful in my own study of the scriptures. And at the end of his life, he said that was the one regret that he had, that he had never learned to receive. He'd always been the one to give and had missed the tremendous pleasure of receiving ministry from others. And Paul had learned to do that. Now, Paul, as we know from uh, other places in the scripture, was a tent maker that he was a blue-collar worker. He was a manual laborer. It tells us in one of the Thessalonian epistles even that he worked day and night, put in overtime in order to supply his own needs. Paul's commitment was to work with his own hands, full-time if necessary, to supply his own needs so that he could offer to people the gospel free of charge. He did this in Thessalonica because he wanted to set an example for the Thessalonian believers. There were some in that church who were lazy and were depending upon handouts. And Paul wanted to set a model for them, so he refused to accept any help from the Thessalonian church. When he went to Corinth, he had to compete with a number of men who were offering truth for a profit, were lining their own pockets with the proceeds from honorariums. And Paul wanted to make it clear that he was not in the dispensing of the gospel for the bucks. And so there in Corinth, he worked with his own hands. The one exception that Paul made was in his relationship with the Philippian church. And we see another evidence of the intimacy and closeness of this relationship, that Paul was willing to accept from the Philippian church material support, financial help, so he could be freed up to minister full-time the gospel. This explains something that a little verse in Acts 18, if you want to turn there just for a second. A little thing that you would miss reading the book of Acts through casually, but comes to light and comes to life with what we understand from Philippians 4. Acts chapter 16 records the beginning of the second missionary journey 
Acts chapter 16, Paul is in Philippi, his first contact with the Philippian church. In Acts 17, he's moved down the coast to Thessalonica, and we see here in chapter 4 that the Philippians even sent a gift to him when he was in Thessalonica, just 100 miles down the Aegean coast. And finally, in chapter 18, on this same missionary journey, Paul comes to Corinth, further down the uh, western coast of Greece. And we see that, as was Paul's custom in verse 2 and 3, he met up with Aquila and Priscilla. And verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers, worked with canvas to make tents and sails and other sorts of things. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul would work from Sunday through Friday and then use Saturday as a day to reason with the Corinthians from the Scriptures. But, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, that's where Philippi was located, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Well, what is it that freed up Paul for this temporary uh, period in life to devote himself wholly or completely to the Word? Well, it was the generous gift of the Philippians to him. And one thing, by the way, in, in my judgment, Paul was the greatest of the apostles. Peter was a close second, but Paul, in my judgment, was the greatest of the apostles. And he was a man who, for the bulk of his ministry, worked full-time to satisfy his own needs. So he knows the same pressures that everyone else in this room is under, of having to sandwich ministry around the pressures and demands of a full-time job. You are tent makers. All of you are ministers of the gospel, just as much as the staff is, just as much as Paul was. You've been given gifts by the Spirit to minister to others. You are ministers of the gospel, just as we are. And yet almost every one of you are tent makers, just as Paul was. And I think it can be a great encouragement to see the way in which Paul was used by God to impact people and touch lives, even though he worked full-time with his own hands. Similar way, God can use you, despite the pressures and the demands of a full-time job. Paul is able to, God is able to use you just as he used the apostle as a tent-making minister of the gospel. Now, as Paul goes on in verses 17 through 19, he makes it clear that the real reason that he is excited about the Philippians' gift is not because of what the gift did for him, but because of what the gift did for them. Not, he says in verse 17, that I seek the gift itself. In other words, Paul wants to make it clear that his effusive gratitude to them is not some kind of shrewd ploy to generate more giving or to create the expectation that they will continue to contribute to him. He says, it's not that I seek the gift itself. The main reason... I rejoice about the revival of your concern is not that I'm looking for contributions. But rather, the reason I'm excited about the revival of your concern for me is for what it will do for you. But I seek, verse 17, for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What I want you to observe is the extensive financial metaphor that Paul uses in this little section. 
In verse 15, the phrase, the matter of giving and receiving, was used in the accounting terminology of that day to refer to debits and credits, in the matter of debits and credits. In verse 17, I seek for the profit or the interest which increases or accrues to your account. To your account, he says. Now notice very carefully what Paul is doing. It says that when you made a contribution to me as a needy brother, as a minister of the gospel, when you made a contribution to me, essentially what happened is that an account in your name was established in the celestial bank. And every time you make a contribution, the interest, the profit in that account grows. In other words, it's an interest-bearing account. So in effect, Paul says, when you give money, you are not giving it away. You are, in fact, investing it. There is an account established which has your name on it. And every time you make a gift to a needy brother or sister, every time you make a contribution to the work of God, every time you contribute to someone who's involved in ministry, you are making another deposit in that account. And you, Paul says, will receive the interest or the profit on that investment. You will all be co-investors in that project, and when the investment begins to return a profit, you will be the ones that will share in the harvest. You will share in the interest that's borne by that account. Now, what does Paul mean by the interest or the fruit that's, in, that's credited to your account? Well, Paul doesn't tell us here. doesn't say I don't expect it's primarily financial, although if you look in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you will see that there I think Paul quite clearly teaches that if you give away what God blesses you with, He will give you more to give away. As soon as you stop giving away what He blesses you with, He will stop blessing you. But here I don't think that financial return is primarily what Paul is talking about. I thought about this in relationship to the Ivans and Raynette, and let me give you a suggestion of how I think this might work in this case. As you're aware, uh, they are close enough to their support level for us to send them out. They're still short. Perhaps some of you, even this morning, will decide to make a contribution, an investment in this ministry. Now, those that have agreed to support the Ivans and to support Raynette, those of you that are considering supporting Chris Hedges as he prepares to go to the Philippines, you all become investors or co-investors with all those who are making contributions to the same project. Now, what is the purpose of this project? What is the profit or the return on this investment that we long for? Well, in the case of the Ivans and Raynette, the return that we are looking for on this investment is changed Chinese lives. That's the harvest that we hope this investment produce. What we long to see is God use them in simple ways to bring Chinese men and women to a knowledge of the riches and the wealth that we possess in Jesus Christ. Now, I think what Paul is saying is when this investment begins to return this profit, when Chinese lives begin to be touched by their ministry, the profit, the interest is invested or credited to our account that our account in the celestial bank receives a deposit every time there is fruit born on the field. I think what this means in a practical sense is when Jesus returns and we stand with him, 
We will meet some of these Chinese believers. We will meet all of those that have been touched by their ministry. And we will share in the credit, if you will, for what has taken place in their lives. And there will be Chinese believers that we have never met, don't even know exist until that point, who will come up to us and say, I'm here because of your generosity. Thank you. And we will have an opportunity for eternity to experience the profit, the interest, the rate of return on those simple investments. And Paul says that's why it is a fragrant aroma in the end of verse 18, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul uses the same uh, technical term that was used in the book of Leviticus to describe the offerings, the burnt offerings, ascending as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Now, burnt offering, you realize, was essentially a barbecue. Now, there is no more fragrant aroma, in my judgment, than the aroma of a barbecue wafting across the backyard. Well, that's exactly what the sacrifice would have smelled. And Paul says that aroma, which was well-pleasing to God when it was given from a heart that was yielded to God, that same aroma that the Jews ascended to God is the same aroma that ascends to the nostrils of God, metaphorically, when you give willingly and generously. It is well-pleasing to Him, a sacrifice that saints under the New Covenant offer. Now, what is it that makes it possible for us to be generous with our funds? Why not take every dime we can, hoard it, conserve it, invest it for retirement, for our children's education? Uh, why not use every available dime to invest in protecting, conserving the needs of my own family? Why be generous? Well, Paul tells us why we can afford to be in verse 19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, we can be generous even with what little we have because we are convinced that God will supply every need, any and every financial need that we have. He will supply according to his riches in glory, his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Tremendous word of comfort in that. Now, if I were to stand up here this morning and tell you, I would like you to be generous, go out from here and be generous, because I will supply your needs according to my riches. Well, you'd probably want to take a look at my bank statement, and once you did, you would uh, start to tremble in your very boots. But what Paul says is that God is the one who will supply. He has pledged himself to do that, to look out for your financial needs and to meet them, every one of them, to see that you are fed and sheltered and clothed. And he promises to do so according to his riches. The maker of heaven and earth, the owner and possessor of all things, has pledged himself to be the one that meets your needs. And that's why we can be generous with what God has entrusted to us. Now, Paul, I think, is obviously applying both the principles in verse 13 and verse 19 primarily to our financial and material circumstances. But he says, My God shall supply all your needs. That is, every need that you have, my God will supply. That is, regardless of whether the need is financial, which is his primary concern here, or whether your need is for a sense of acceptance or belonging, a sense of worth, sense of self-acceptance, whether it's a need for conviction that your life is significant, that it counts, uh, whether your need is for peace, 
tranquility or a need for companionship, God is the one who will satisfy that need. No man, no woman can be the one that meets those needs for you. But God will. He will supply all of your needs, perhaps using people to do so, but God is the one who meets your needs. And see, this is what frees us up from depending upon our wives or our husbands or our children or our friends for this. If we depend upon them, they'll let us down every time. We'll be disillusioned and bitter and angry. But God has pledged himself, he himself, according to his riches, to meet every need that we have. came across a quote which I think captures the desperation of looking to others instead of to God for the satisfaction of our basic needs. When we expect a friend or a lover to be able to take away our deepest pain, we expect from him or her something that cannot be given by human beings. No human being can understand us fully. No human being can give us unconditional love. No human being can offer constant affection. No human being can enter into the core of our being and heal our deepest brokenness. When we forget that and expect from others more than they can give, we will be quickly disillusioned. For when we do not receive what we expect, we easily become resentful, bitter, revengeful, and even violent. And yet if we understand the truth of this passage that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, we can say this along with Malcolm Muggeridge. I may, I suppose, he says, regard myself as being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the street. That's fame. Uh, People stare at me occasionally, but not for that reason. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the highest slopes of inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, can partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated to persuade myself that it presented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, And I beg of you to believe me. Multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of the living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for the tremendous word of encouragement in this passage that we can do all things through the one who strengthens us. And Lord, many of us are struggling with besetting sins or habit patterns and may be discouraged this morning over the lack of progress. I pray that you would encourage them with this word that if they continue to count upon your strength and power, they will be able to do everything you ask them to do in time. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of contentment that that verse offers. We can be content. Help us, as Paul did, to learn what that means and to be patient as we go through that process. And we thank you for the promise of your abundant provision that you will take care of every financial need that we have. You'll meet our needs and keep us sheltered and clothed and housed. We praise you for that. We ask you to work on our behalf in just that way in this coming week. Those that have financial needs among us, Lord, we pray that out of the abundance of your riches, you would supply 
their need in this week and give us great reason to praise you for your faithfulness. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our treasure and our supply. Amen.